1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Before we get into the conversation of all the great things that you guys are doing, we might as well just get this right on the table and get this discussion over with. Who's the best duck hunter? <laughs> uh, duck or goose? Okay. Well, we've already started down a path. We have now have two categories. <laughs> so who's the best duck hunter and who's the best goose hunter? We might as well just, we uh, might as well just. Oh, we're, we're both pretty close. I'd say we're real close on the ducks, but on geese, Chris, way better goose caller by far. It's a 1A, 1B, I would think on ducks, but I'll, yeah. I'll tip my hat a little bit on the geese. Okay. Okay. But we have both, we both really increased our number of birds in the last couple of years on geese. I, I think we've really turned a corner. We, we, we didn't know much about them and we're really doing well now. So. Oh, Awesome. The nice part about the ducks is that we, as a tandem team, like we, most times you get one guy in the, in the, in the duck line that's going to do all the calling. Whereas what we do is we call as a team. So Dan's got an incredible hail call. And what I do is I fill in around there. I'll give a quicker chatter call or I'll switch to a feeding chuckle uh, or just single quacks or a drake whistle and just fill in around there. And when, when you put the two of them together, it's amazing how quick you can have big flocks of birds come right, right to the hole. Really? Well, that's, uh, that's definitely, that's definitely something I got to work on. Cause, uh, yeah, I just haven't got the whole goose calling thing kind of nailed down. Like it, it's one of the things I've always believed, like with elk calling and my game really changed when I realized and learned what the vocalizations say in elk language, not just whether or not you can make call A or call B and go like, wow, that sounded like an elk. To me, that doesn't really matter because they actually respond to like a lot of like quite crappy calls, but it's knowing what you're actually saying. And I've, I just have never really figured that out with geese yet. And I don't like to spend like, 
hours on YouTube with someone else telling me, like, I kind of like to figure it out myself. But what I have figured out is uh, I've got this down perfectly. Um, go away, danger here. You've got that call figured out? Yes. Yeah, I'm really good at that. Well, then, then that's half That's half the battle right there. You got that part figured out. <laughs> so when you're calling geese, are you using a flute or are you using a short read? Um, I've actually got like the, the barrel, but not a, not a short barrel and not a flute. Right. So the short reeds blow totally different than the, the, the flutes do. You can blow a, a goose flute just the same as you can duck call, same, same kind of air, but the short reeds, they're a whole different animal. You have to change the air, where it comes from, how you, how you work it. And then when you stop the air and it's a, just a totally different way of doing it. If you blow a short read goose call the same way you blow a duck call, it just sounds like your 1987 part, uh, Christmas or New Year's Eve party somewhere with a drunk uncle. <laughs> it's not the same. Uh, oh, well. I'm and if you can't blow a short read, you blow a flute like I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, a, I'm a work in progress when it comes to, uh, com- comes to the goose calls. So. Uh, hey everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by J. Martin Taxidermy out of Kelowna, BC. I, uh, I've been talking a lot about mounts and, and the one thing I actually think that will fit nicely with this episode that I've been wanting to do for a while is get kind of one of each species of duck and have like a really nice specimen and have those all mounted up have like a big green head mallard have a nice pintail have a wood duck have you know have have that and I, I I've always loved the look of of birds that have been taxidermized uh, I know grouse and stuff it's tough because they kind of have softer feathers but you've always said ducks have the the nice stiff feathers or waterfowl have the nice stiff feathers and they mount a lot easier they're a lot easier to to groom out afterwards so if you are a bird hunter you should think about sending some birds to Jesse over at J Martin taxidermy and see if he can get those looking nice for you because mounted birds are pretty cool one day I'll definitely get a few. I just got to get some specimens. We have some gray partridge too in the freezer from years ago. Maybe we'll have to send those over to Jesse. But and a- uh, JMT, J-, J. Martin Taxidermy is a small family-run operation. Uh, it's Jesse, his wife, and their two kids. And we are very proud that they are the title sponsor for the Hunter Conservationist podcast. So as always, thanks to J. Martin Taxidermy. 100%. Yeah, we got turkeys in the freezer. We got some gray partridge. Uh, just lack the space. I've always wanted a wild turkey done like full flying to show all the colors and the beautiful plumage. But you need like a six by six square foot blank wall to put that one up. So I don't know. Guys, welcome to the show. Dan Otway and Chris Bradford uh, from Pit Water Fowlers. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, this has been relatively recent, uh, meeting you guys, following you on, on Instagram through a mutual uh, friend of ours out of Alberta. So that's uh, it's pretty cool. Welcome. Well, thanks for having us. 
Yeah, thank you. Pit waterfowlers. What is that? Explain what you do, what well, that is, what it means, what you don't do. <laughs> well, I'll start. Um, my father and his buddy, uh, Rich Fethui, started a program back in the 70s, and it was Pit Waterfowl Association. And they brought in 500 Canada geese into Lower Mainland Vancouver area, and they also had a wood duck program on. And they had boxes, oh, probably 500 or so, through the Lower Mainland Fraser Valley, B.C. here. And uh, Chris and I met hunting one day, and him and his son uh, uh, were building a few boxes, and Chris suggested we start putting them up. And uh, what started as a conversation in a blind uh, has morphed into 11 years of successful box uh, uh, placement in, in our lower mainland area, mostly pit meadows. And we talked about calling our program Pit Waterfowl Association, but we decided Pit Waterfowlers uh, would be a better morph of the old name and also include friends and people we've met in the marsh who've become part of our program and part of our friendship and, and helped us with this program in general. Um, Chris, you got anything? Yeah, well, like, like Dan mentioned, we were it was a slow day in December, and um, my son was just coming into 10, and he, he wanted to get into it, but I wanted him to understand it's not just about taking. There's got to be a, a conservation ending and give back. And Dan was telling me about this this idea or what his dad had done. And so I thought, well, that's great. So, yeah, I told my kid. I said, come on, we're going to make seven boxes. So we made them in the shop, and Dan and I put them out. Um, we had seven out that first year, and we checked them a bunch of times, and, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing. We finally – we had one up in the in this area we called Woody Hollow – and, you know, you're getting frustrated and we drive up, Dan bumps the boat into it. The box is shaking all over the place. And, you know, I'm yelling at him to slow down and <laughs> put my phone in. And here's a picture of this duck. Like we put our phone in and took a picture and there's a duck in there. And and we turned into like some sort of a TV show hunting crew where we're, we're all whispering, trying to be quiet. Meanwhile, <laughs> we just rattled the teeth out of this duck. So it was one of those things that we just changed. It changed what we were doing. And it quickly caught on with a lot of the hunters in the marsh. They, you know, a lot of people wanted to get involved with it, uh, and it really took off from there. Wow! So, what what species are you? Were you the boxes targeting? Well, they're, we're targeting wood ducks. Um, we don't have a ton in our area. Well, we didn't have a ton, um, but there are a number around there. But there's very little habitat for them now. The way the, the farmlands are are taking over with the cranberries and the blueberries and just, just the way they are, we're losing a lot of cavity nesting opportunities. So like Dan's dad had done this wood duck program. So that's what we'll do. And um, it 99% of the ducks we get would be wood ducks. We do get uh, some um, hooded mergansers. Uh, they'll get in there cause they're also a cavity nester. Um, and then we get some bi species like uh, purple martin, swallows, that kind of stuff. Uh, flickers, we've gotten a few of those over the years, that kind of stuff. Um, but we're targeting wood ducks specifically. That's the, uh, on our little logo, that's the wood duck head that's on there. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. So what's what's your total total count out now for boxes that you're managing? Uh, so a total number we have out is around 184, 186, something like that. Um, we have a few different areas that we're 
focusing on. So we have uh, a local marsh here, which houses the majority of them. I think we're around 80 up in the marshes area. And then there's um, a lot of the farmland that we get to hunt. Our farmers are really good about letting us put up boxes in their sloughs, which have been phenomenal uh, success rates. We've got woodies in there like crazy. Um, and it's nice because it's it's private land, uh, even though the sloughs are public to the area, but it's private land. So all the boxes we put up, we have a, a trail cams that we've been putting out there. And that's where, if you check out our Instagram, that's where all the pictures, you know, all the good pictures of the birds on the boxes are coming from. Uh, so we've got another, I think, 30 or so in the sloughs. And then uh, we have a couple different farms uh, in different areas around here that farmers have contacted us and said, hey, I got a pond, I've got a slough, can you come put a, a couple boxes up? Um, so they don't get checked as regularly as our sloughs. Dan is our resident photographer expert. Uh, he's an incredible photographer, but he goes and checks all the uh, the trail cams a couple times a week. And he's constantly uploading and, and editing and doing all the pictures you see. Everything, all those pictures are, are thanks to Dan. Yeah, we're, we're fortunate that we have this private land and it allows us to put trail cameras up on it. And I have certain routes, you know, I get go take my dog for a walk. I'm out there during the off season. And uh, it's not all about the ducks. We get excellent duck pictures, but we get eagles and owls, turkey vultures, well, just about anything that even some birds that when I ask online, anybody know what this is? And it's like, that's a northern shrike, a really rare bird in our area, stuff like that. So it's always uh, a lot of fun to go out and check these things and see what's come by while we've been not around. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's really been like you guys really embody kind of like the the conservation spirit of duck hunters in North America that go back hundreds of years, right? It's like identifying that duck conservation and the enjoyment that we get from hunting ducks all ties back to nesting habitat, which was, as you guys know, why the focus of duck hunter conservationists in North America, um, you know, that sort of movement started in the United States, but they very quickly identified the Prairie Pothole region of Canada as being the duck factory of North America. And that's where all of the conservation efforts come through as to the Prairie Pothole region. And, and that just, it just seems to be what you guys are doing just seems to be a really integral part of waterfall hunting you know in big game hunting we talk about conservation kind of on the side but i just always find like conservation and duck biology ecology and the flights and what they're feeding on and all that kind of stuff is just is goes hand in hand with waterfowl hunting and you guys are literally like doing both at the same time almost so well we're fortunate a lot of this is in our backyard you know, it's, it's 10 minutes from our houses, if that, you know, we can be on there uh, a little more involved if we take our boats and go up the big marsh about 20 minutes away or if we go up the Alouette River here. But uh, it, it's just great experience to go out. We get to take new people out. They get to experience it. We've, we've even taken out uh, the local police, uh, wanted to see what we were doing. Um, we have to call in and let them know we're on the river. We don't have a uh, – we had to get a permit to take a boat on the river and uh, – they were asking about it. They came along, and it, it's just one of those things. People actually like it. They like once they find out what we're doing, it, it's a really good experience for us. Yeah, great, 
great for people to make that connection between people that like to hunt and eat ducks with, with uh, the conservation of, of the very species. Now, Chris, when you and I were talking a while ago, you were also sort of saying like there's a portion of what you're doing, your actual duck hunting in the fields you're on is 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 truly kind of hunting as a management tool because you got the blueberry fields and and the other agriculture areas there and just a a ton of birds uh hammering these agriculture areas and is that is that did I hear that right? Like you're kind of in the role of of some crop mitigation work as well. Yep. So um, we have a, a really we have some great <laughs> farmers and landowners uh, in our area who um, we do like we'll get the permits for uh, crop protection um, throughout the spring and summer and then into the early fall. Uh, and so we keep the birds out of their fields when they've just planted because uh, the geese can get in and just decimate fields. Um, people don't realize it, but 12 geese can eat as much as, as a cow in a day. Um, so you, you, nobody would turn a cow loose in a, in a newly planted field. But when do you only see 12 geese? So um, we try and do as much as we can for them that way. Uh, and then the, in turn, they let us, we, they, we get exclusive access to their farmlands in the fall. Um, because once they've harvested, of course, there's always there's still crop on the ground, and that's what brings in the local birds. In our local area, um, there's been such a boom for the blueberries and the cranberries um, that it's only left really a small swath of land that's still being used by the dairy farmers for their for their crops, be it their their hay and their their wheat or their uh, silage corn and that kind of stuff. And what it's does it's really drawn all the birds to one location. So you're getting, instead of it being, you know, spread out throughout the valley, um, like it would be out towards Abbotsford and Chilliwack, in our area, it's such a small area that they have access to this food that it's just an absolute mecca for the birds to come in. And then, of course, once they're in feeding, they're going to they're gonna poop. And it's all that, the, the, it changes the pH's level for the, for the farmers. Uh, plus, any cover crop they put on. Once those widgeon get in there, they're just like little lawnmowers. They'll mow it all down. So hmm. it really is trying to help save their cover crops and protect their soil for next year's planting. Wow. Wow. That's, that's wild. And um, kind of full circle, the, what they get to eat off the farmers, uh, you guys, and whoever you're giving the, the duck meat away to is, is coming full circle and, Thanks, thanks to some of the farmers, I guess. They're probably some pretty, pretty healthy, plump birds that you're harvesting in that environment. Well, the local birds, you know, you can always tell birds of the year. Um, they, you can tell they've been eating local. Um, but it's unique that when we get the cold up north and we get that push of birds that come down, they might have been feeding on bigger sloths up north. But once they get down to this area, they're looking for the only spot they can find is what we have. So when they get in here, they're, they're moving and they're just coming to gorge themselves so they can get out. So the local birds are, you can tell those guys, but when the, when the Northerns get down, they're just, they're twice the size. They're twice as fatty and they're twice as juicy. They're good. They're good to eat. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that Northern flights to show up and they're still not here yet. Last, it was, this time last year, I was just having some epic 
epic hunts and they're nowhere to be seen yet. So I'm, I'm hoping they show up pretty quick. Now, I also just recently saw on your Instagram page, uh, you had a call out recently for duck hunters in the area for like the boned out carcasses. And you're working on yeah. some kind of a program with trappers that are trying to catch and relocate yeah. cats. Like, So this will be our third year helping that program. So the BC Trappers Association, uh, they contact us and want to know um, anybody that's got, once they've, because most people breast out their birds here, like the number of, you know, I just turn 99% of mine into duckaroni. That's what I get done with it. Just save it up and then you can enjoy it the rest of the year. Um, so the local trappers association, they're involved with a place down in the States. And what they're trying to do is reintroduce some um, different species of cats that have, um, that used to be uh, in, in areas down in the States. They're trying to trap, live trap some cats here and take them down. Um, so they want these duck carcasses because they're, it's a, it's a great bait for them. Um, so we've got that message. Bobcats. Yep. So they're, they're bobcats is what they're looking yep. for. Yep. And they're, they, they want to take them, they want to take them down to a couple different States, um, just across the line. Um, but they, they're looking specifically for these baits and, um, last couple of years, uh, it was funny because everybody says the same thing. Oh, Hey, you know, I, I could use it. I could use some duck carcasses for something, uh, or, you know, fly tires. I need some wings. Okay. How many do you need? Well, I'll take whatever you can give me. And after one weekend, they say, okay, that's enough because you put the call out and everybody answers it. So a lot of our volunteers who come out to help with our nesting box program, they're also hunters locally because they see the value and, and it feels great to them to give back to what they're taking from. So they all pitch in right away and it doesn't take very long. Um, that call out actually just went out today. And as we speak, I've got probably 40 or 50 carcasses in garbage bags in my boat beside the house right now that'll be picked up tomorrow just just guys that have been out this week already like from the weekend and, and the last couple of days wow so we'll we'll fill that in in no time for it that's a cool connection hey like a conservation project trappers and waterfowl hunters it's just what a what a uh, what a cool thing back in 2010 ish 2011 um what we were doing is we were, I would save up all our carcasses. And when I had three great, cause I have one freezer that's don't dedicated just to birds. So I would get three big garbage bags of carcasses. And when the kids were little, we would take, um, there's a place here called the owl, uh, raptor, uh, rehab facility. Mm. And they get lots of people bringing them fish carcasses in, but what they don't have is any sort of waterfowl. And, We've already taken the easy meat out of them, and they they loved it. So we would take it out there. The kids got a free tour of the place. Uh, we would donate all that meat. But then they had an avian flu scare uh, in 2012, and they said even though they, they realized that the raptors are still eating migratory birds no matter what, they couldn't take them anymore. And then once it shut down, it was easier for them not to, to do it anymore. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's always always something but uh yeah it's cool to, to to see the diversity of things that you guys as hunters are are dedicating your time to because this is, takes a lot of time to to do that kind of stuff and for trappers to do that kind of stuff and and uh yeah that's super cool i know you know like i've just 
started into trapping a little bit, but I've heard that bobcats love Canada geese. Um, and of course the cats, you know, like the, you know, they, they'll use the, the, a wing or whatever is as a, as a flag, like, you know, cats will see that from a long distance away and you'll, you'll pull them in into your set. And, um, and they just, they love, love geese. Like even I, tried for bobcat for the last two winters and I would use like a wing and the head. So, you know, when the bobcat looks in there, it's like, well, there's a freaking goose standing there. Right. So, um, and then they also like the wild turkeys down here in the East Coonies. So here that works, that works pretty good too. But, uh, so, so what, is is there anything else I haven't learned about you guys, like kind of projects that you're involved in? Well, I I think the key thing that, that we bring up in, in, you know, I'll allude to Chris's expression, but uh, you know, as far as we are in waterfall and outdoors, Chris, uh, what is it? No, no off season. Oh yeah, there is no off season. No, not, <laughs> none whatsoever. Chris so, says that all the time. There's no off season. Yeah. We we go. No. We'll phone each other, or text each other all the time about something, and and we're for all, all, forever meeting people. I think that's one thing. Chris and I are not those kind of guys that are quite secretive about what we're doing. We're not, we're not the kind of guy that, you know, um, someone asks us something, we're open to tell, help them out and tell them. We, you know, we used to come in the old marsh. Most, most of the guys in our program are guys we just met at the launch. Chris used to talk to them. We both talked to them. And if we liked what we were getting from them, we'd ask for their email. And Chris would send them an email and say, we're doing duck boxes. Are you interested? And if they didn't show up, we didn't call them again. But if they did, they, they were in. They got in our inner circle. And they're guys that we deal with and do our things with. You know, we hunt with them. We uh, made friends with them. And it, it's a positive thing. You, you end up getting like-minded people doing the same stuff. And it, be, it, it becomes better for all of us. So it, it really worked out. So Nice. I can find a volunteer in camo anywhere. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, and they're all pretty good guys. Yeah, so it's really worked out. That's a good saying. Now, I want to shift a little bit into a really interesting story, Chris, that you kind of like kind of touched on the highlights last week. So back us up a number of years ago and tell us about the issues that you guys started seeing with new hunters coming out to the marsh, lost birds, and what you attributed that whole that whole rush in in into waterfowl hunting but back us up when when was that and tell tell that story so that would have been around 2011 and when it was kind of the height of when duck dynasty hit um up here Mm. and i know dan and i both all of a sudden you started seeing more and more of these weird rigs and people in bright colored stuff and you were finding your blinds were being used and um, you found all kinds of paraphernalia and stuff that just wasn't really what you would think of when you think duck hunting. Um, and, and it really brought out, everybody wanted to come out and be uncle Cy. That's, that's what we saw up here. I remember getting a call one day, uh, Dan and I were hunting in one blind and somebody in another part of the marsh said, what are you doing? And I said, well, what do you mean? We're, we were out here. We're, we're sitting pretty good. I think we had 12 at the time. And he says, well, no, you got a blue tarp and a white Zodiac at your blind. And I said, well, no, we're not in that blind today. 
So somebody had gone there, and because it's raining, they put up a big blue tarp. They tied their white zodiac to the blind. There was no nothing covered it up, and they were taking 80 to 100 yard shots at anything that went by. Um, and what we saw was, you know, guys were everybody came out. They didn't have dogs. Uh, they didn't have boats to be in that marsh. They would be running back and forth on dikes, trying to get in the way of passing birds and just taking long sky busting bombs at these things. Uh, and sometimes they, you know, wound a bird and stuff. And between the two of us, our dogs were finding all kinds of dead birds, you know, outside of, of when we were hunting because these guys, they were shooting at stuff. They, they had no way of retrieving it and they were just trying to be out there, you know, being Willie Jace or, or Uncle Cy or well, whoever they were going to be. Um, and that's really when Dan and I started talking, like when he says we're pretty open about taking people out and helping, he's a hundred percent right. Um, and we, we started taking people and saying, well, Hey, why don't you, you know, you would take them to somewhere and because they'd say, I'm interested in learning about this. So you took them to some piece on the river that was open to public and, you know, you're using your dog, your decoys, your call, your setup, and they get their eight birds and they think it's great. And then they go back there next Sunday with their buddy with no decoys, no dog, unable to call. And all they're doing is blasting away and they're educating birds and the birds, all they realize is, Hey, stay away from that area. So it's ruining those areas and it, it's educating birds. And, and we kind of went, you know, we got to find a way to, to mitigate this. Uh, and that's when Dan had a great idea. So let's put on a course. And that's, that's what we've started doing the last couple of years now. We, we put on a duck hunting course for new hunters and it is real world experience. It's a, it's full 10 hours and you, the, they get immersed right in to see exactly what it takes. Uh, we work with everyone for calls. Um, they actually build and grasp lines, um, the whole thing, because if you're going to do it, you better figure out how. We show them how hard it is to cut that much grass and and the different tools you can use and show them. You know, when we started, we were just using a pair of hand shears and you might have to make seven, eight trips in your boat to grass your blind up. Not everybody wants to put that kind of effort in. So it, it's sort of it's showing the real thing. And maybe those who aren't as committed don't actually come out. But the ones who do are, are becoming better hunters. Oh, and, and we get phone calls from we get phone calls from these guys or even during hunting and and you know they tell us hey that made a difference i never thought you had to give a place for a bird to land um yeah it just it just is shortcut them to a good thing you know when we do our grass our blinds up we grass it we put a ladder up they all go on top and then we show them how we improve on that and that's probably one of the things we found hunting there the last 15 years or so made the biggest difference and we put panels in between you can stand up on, but they find out those are worth the effort. And these guys are being more successful because they're getting uh, the concealment they need. And uh, the other thing is I, I'm, I'm uh, involved, I'm president of my local gun club, and we try and get them to come out and learn to shoot a bit too, because that's a big part. You know, I don't care how good you're hidden and how many decoys you have. If you can't shoot, you're not going to get anything. So we always uh, try to include that. I usually invite them to come back after something. Wow. What's the record, Dan, for what was the record in our that day for was it two and a half boxes? Guy was with us. It was just under three. It was just under three boxes. Just under three. So he, he 
He had the decoys, he had the dogs, he had the call, and he had the blind. But if you can't hit a duck, it's an awful expensive day out there to make noise. <laughs> it's a tough and day. Unfortunately, in Canada, as you guys know, we don't have that um, Pittman-Roberts uh, excise tax on our ammunition. So you can't be sitting there going, man, this guy's contributing to conservation like all hell. <laughs> and it's just like, keep going, buddy, keep going. <laughs> um, <laughs> but for us, it's like, yeah, whether you shoot, you shoot, you know, one bird, one shell or whatever, it's like, it's not, not uh, contributing to conservation. So other than, a, you know, there's a couple of the, the manufacturers, I think, have deals with uh, Delta and DU and stuff. I think a little bit of the money comes back and finds its way to Canada, but not, not quite the same. You know, that's, that's really interesting, you know, your observations about like what caused that kind of a, a gold rush, almost what it was like, right? Just Hey, this is the popular thing to do. And, you know, when you told me this like last week on the phone and I really started thinking about this and, you know, we used to watch some of the duck dynasty shows when, when the kids were little, but they were always like, they were very stunt based in what they did. Mm -hmm. But even though their whole world and their business and their family revolved around duck hunting, I don't really recall them really taking the opportunity to teach people about ducks, duck ecology, duck hunting, duck ethics. You know, they would sit there and make jokes while they made, you know, the duck calls and, you know, and test them to make sure that they, you know, got quality control, whatever. But there was never really that, um, like, hey, we know that most of our viewers are people that are interested in duck hunting, but they don't know. So we're going to take that responsibility. Meat Eater did, you know, I think Meat Eater and mm -hmm. Steve Ranella, like you can, if you follow his shows from the very beginning, it's just sort of like, you know, this is how you skin a deer and this is where the diaphragm is. And this is how I, you know, leave the evidence of sex on and I won't shoot any farther than 400 yards. That's just my, you know, thing. And there was all these, this is how you cook a shank. Most people mm -hmm. just leave them in the bush. He, he always had that, that thought put into the shows that he had people that were curious about this, but the duck dynasty guys weren't, they wanted to like, you know, blow up barrels and beaver dams and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, is my, perception of the duck dynasty guys wrong like did i miss well, those episodes or? i i would say you know they, they're good guys i'd love to hunt with them i think it'd be yep. a blast but i think the main thing about it was a tv show that's what you have to remember it wasn't about duck hunting or anything particular it, it was something they worked around but it was more of a show about them and the character their character and their fam and their fam. And, it, was, it was a show about yeah, fam but they were great guys yep. they're great, yeah they're, no they're funny sure. guys i'm sure they serious hunters i'm sure it'd be a lot of fun to go with them but the show wasn't they based used on to have that, a, uh, who cares? <laughs> they used to have a show called Duck Commander, and it was on, it was a smaller show. Um, and if you can ever find episodes of those, A, you'll never recognize the characters that they played because they're actually themselves. But it is, they're talking about like opening day, they're arguing about the winds and which blind to go to. Stuff that, you know what, Dan and I have had that conversation a two days trillion times. <laughs> two days ago. <laughs> um, but they were they when they're serious about how they're hunting ducks and what they're doing they they truly are duck hunters but the show and the characters and the scripted show and there there's podcasts that you can listen to that 
they talk specifically about it was all scripted and they tried to put a message in at the end and stuff, which is great for the family. Unfortunately, what we saw on the field was everybody just wanted to come out and blast away and, and it started to negatively affect what was going on. And like I said, the number of ducks when we, when our dogs were out, uh, we'd be out doing our nesting box program and early season and anything late that got picked off, or if you were just out, you know, doing something in that area, dogs are always coming back with, you know, old, old uh, ducks that the, the local raptors or whatever else was in the marsh hadn't found yet. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. There was a real problem with optics in the area too, because the area where a lot of the guys go public areas, there are people who walk the dikes and take their dogs and do things like that. Cause it's public. It's not just a hunting area. And they see these guys taking along or, or sketchy distant shot. The bird sails off. And, and what do they say? The letters in the paper saying, well, these hunters, they shot a bird and they didn't even make, try and catch it, you know, get it. And, uh, it's frustrating for us because we've worked very hard to try and improve the image in the area. And, uh, you know, uh, dealing with the city and different other cities during different issues with firearm restrictions and that. And it's hard to put that forward when these other people are there arguing about what they've seen and they see one guy, but you know what? We're all like that in their eyes. And that's a really tough for us to, to turn around. I think we've done a good job of it. And I think our, our pit waterfallers, especially in our local council here, we've got a, a good uh, platform and, and I think they really uh, appreciate what we're doing and, and, we we promote on social media as far as the community site and stuff like that, and it's well received. It's worked out well for us. So, was it getting tense enough that you guys are like worried that like municipalities were going to start curtailing hunting opportunities in the area? And like, was it was it was it at that point, or you could see if nothing was done, it was going to maybe eventually get there? Well, it wasn't so much right here, but like Dan was alluding to, um, a number of years ago, we had to, there there was a, a problem in one of the neighboring communities, and that community had jurisdiction over one of the rivers. Um, and that river is one of the ones that we hunt. And they wanted to shut down the discharge of firearms uh, throughout their community, which would have affected a gun club up in that area. Um, and to that point, it was for a little bit further north of that, that there's a big area of mountains that um, a lot of guys would go up there and bow hunt uh, for deer, like for blacktails. And then the spring bears were always uh, good pickings up there because um, as the community grew, it grew up the mountain and there's more and more interfaces with bears. So they wanted to shut it down. And Dan and I um, specifically when we spoke uh, about, you know, if you do this, you're shutting down access to, uh, specifically our end waterfowl and you know we've got a goose problem here that is it's it's taken over they changed the the limits from five to ten he's i want to say back in like 2012 or something but even by then it was too late like there's too many here now so it was one of those things where we wanted them to know that the the hunting population is here uh, we are responsible and you know it's the one bad apple type thing so We'd seen it in other communities. So there was another one east of here out in the valley um, where guys grew up, you know, in a gravel pit, just target shooting and stuff. But it's easier for them to close an area than to actually deal with the problem. So we'd gone to both places and spoke. And when it's right in our backyard, then we knew we, we needed to do something a lot sooner so that we didn't get to that point. 
Mm-hmm. And, and we've spoke to council and to the, to the staff and they're supposed to call us when they're going to be discussing changes and we'll be part of that, hopefully discussions. So that, that's what we're waiting on actually for next year, I think. Huh. Hmm. So do you, th- do you guys see like, has things changed around a bit? And, and since you've been, you know, running your waterfall, hunting course and stuff do you see some success stories and some some gains where you feel like feel good about what what you're doing and what you've done what what i've seen is probably hunters sort of self-policing each other and, and taking steps to uh um basically call people out if they're doing something wrong and not sitting back and let it happen because it, really? it affects all of us that's that's something we teach in our course you know Hey, you don't want to hunt here tomorrow. You want to hunt here the rest of your life. So don't screw it up. Don't, don't take that marginal shot. Don't do something that's going to shut it down. You got to have that long-term uh, objective of keeping this area viable forever. And one of our areas, the pit marsh, well, we, in some talks we found out is actually earmarked to be a public hunting area. And it's going to be, take some federal stuff to probably change that one around. But the rest of our area, it, it's a lot of farmland, and uh, there's a lot of areas that are closed. Some areas are away from the dike, river only, uh, waterside shooting away from the dikes. There's a few areas like that. Um, but in general, it's farmland, and our community's pretty pro, you know, um, hunting as far as that goes, because there were instances where something could have happened, and I think our farmers in that law be pretty heavy to have it continue. So I, I think we're not too bad. I don't know what's going to change in the next 10 years. Um, but right now, I think we're we're on the right side of it. We just got to make sure we do things to make sure it continues. Huh, that's, uh, I mean, that's super encouraging. I know some of the stuff I've been learning about, like private land in Alberta uh, from Doug, our friend, is, you know, this ethos that you were talking about, like, farmers and bracing hunting and you know you're helping control the the geese and the ducks and stuff um that was like you know grandpa and grandma and mom and dad and those generations have now handed like in a lot in southern alberta they've handed those farms and the management of those operations over to the kids and some farms the the kids that have taken over um, you know, from the older generations carry on with that same, you know, uh, attitude towards hunters and, you know, letting them on their private land and others are just sort of like, nope, forget it. Like the first person that tries to four wheel drive up, you know, one of their hills or whatever, and leaves two ruts up. It's just like, that's it. You know, they're, they're, you know, almost like they're less tolerant of, you know, the shit. Uh, that happens on private land and, and it's a, it's a really changing dynamic. So that seems encouraging what you're saying in, in the Fraser Valley, because people always make fun about the lower mainland and that's where all the people <laughs> live that want the grizzly bear hunt ban and all that kind of stuff. Right. But it's like, I'm almost like, Hey folks, that's where most of the province's hunters are too, is in, in the, in the lower mainland. So, um, so that, that's cool. That's cool that you're, feeling that that your private landowners and your farmers and stuff are are still still that way still still old school 
Well, it's nice that the farmers that we deal with specifically, they, they've talked to the uh, city council liaison person for land management, and they've, they've been quite adamant to her about just the, the damage they're receiving because all the birds are in such a concentrated area. Um, and in that conversation, our names came up. So she contacted us and we were able to take her out um, and show her the project we're doing. And of course, everybody says, well, isn't it counterintuitive? You're trying to get the ducks gone, but you're making wood ducks. Wood ducks don't eat this, the crops that our farmers are putting out. So it's, it's a balance that way. Like the, the birds that are eating the stuff, the widgeon and the mallards, their numbers are just phenomenal in this area because of the concentration. So it's not that we're creating ducks that are going to cause problems. We're creating ducks that aren't as plentiful here so that they have more. And then when she sees the giving back and the, the take and, the, and seeing that it's, it all connects, the farmers are asking us to put the boxes out because they like to see the wood ducks. They're asking us to protect the crops so that they don't have to plant and reseed. Like we are saving our farmers tens of thousands of dollars a year between lost crops, lost time, diesel, not driving back over top of the same crops to replant and stuff like that. Um, like they've said, it's it's markedly changed their their whole planting procedure because of what we're doing. Um, and to go back what Dan was saying earlier about educating and guys policing themselves, a lot of that comes from, like I said, I, there's nobody in Camel that I won't turn into a volunteer for our duck nesting work. So when you start grabbing all these guys that are in the marsh and make them part of the conservation end of things, they, they feel that ownership to it. And then you're able to, to, you know, have those conversations about, you know, you don't want it, don't want it so bad that you're going to wreck it. And like Dan said, we're not hunting tomorrow. We're here to hunt for a lifetime. And you get to basically impart all of that same mindset on, on the collective. And then that spreads out from there. Um, and, and when you have that community come together and we are so grassroots, like Dan and I fund everything. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a case of you are grassroots and you, you have that connection, they see it and then they buy into it. And that's really helped us with not having as many issues as we could have in this area. Wow. Great, great leadership. Great leadership. Those are so, so inspirational what you guys are doing. I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you going, oh, geez, we're, we're, we should start doing some projects here locally or whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, it's like, the, the project I want to have is like some great big, huge um, freezing machines. And I'm going to put them up north of Edmonton. So it freezes the ponds up. So all the mallards come down here. That's, it comes down. Down. <laughs> so, but uh, well, no, it's, it, it's cool. You know, one of the things I, I, you know, just shifting gears a little bit that I'm, I'm seeing that you're doing uh, like on social media, which is just a reflection of what you're doing, you know, day to day when you're, when you're going out hunting, but it's like the new people that you have out there and it's like, oh, hey, this is like so-and-so and we just saw him over there across the road and we we're just like, hey, why don't you come over here with us? And then it's then, you know, a little while later, there's a picture up and it's like, here's Bob's first ever duck and here's Bob's first ever limit for the day or whatever. And you're just so excited and you're just bringing these people in and I think setting them on the right path and show, showing them a good good time but it seems like you guys love doing that 
Well, Dan, why don't you tell them about those guys from the blueberry field the other day? Yeah, well, it'll make your day. You know, these sort of things make your day or make your season, even depending on, you know, how things are going. Because if you do it right, it's a positive experience. Um, Chris and I hunt the field. I can't, I think there's three of us. Our buddy Chip was with us. He was getting ready to move back to Ontario. So it was a little bit of a send off for Chip. And these guys, they hunt, oh, I don't know what, 200 yards, 250 from us, maybe. They don't have much of a field. They're on the edge of a blueberry field on back on the slough. Um, but they've never done well. They're close enough to us that they just get to watch us shoot a lot of ducks, to be honest with you. <laughs> so we, um, we're sitting there and we see some geese flying over and, they're high. We wouldn't shoot them. I know that. And I went, those guys are going to shoot at those. We said, yep, we're watching. And the guys fired and one of them drops down quite a bit and banks away from the flock and he's coming our way. And I'm going, well, he sees way too high. But I said, Chris, you want to take a crack at him? Because Chris is probably our best long shot guy. And uh, he hammers it, drops it in the slew right beside us, maybe 15 yards away. So dog gets it and Chris gets out and says, I'm going to go give it to those guys. They haven't really shot anything. I'll, I'll give them the bird. And my first thought was, let's put a sucker band on it and kind of play a joke on these guys. <laughs> and then we went, no, nah, we better not do that. And then we uh, we started laughing. I said, well, why don't you see if they want to come over? We got, I, I don't know, man, I had hundreds of widgeon landing around our RoboDuck and in our decoys, and we were shooting mallards. So we said, um, you know, can, you know, maybe we'll invite them over. So Chris goes over and Comes back, yep, they're going to come. So there was, we squeezed five guys into our blind. It's basically a four-man blind. And when the guy gets there, uh, the young guys, they're just smiling ear to ear. They're super happy. And uh, some ducks come in, and maybe they're 15 yards out. The guy drops one. Dogs bring it in. I hand it to him, and he goes, that's my first duck. And we all started laughing. We said, oh, congratulations. We're all laughing, right? And he was just jacked. And he was shooting his grandpa's old Model 12 uh, pump and, uh, the other fellow had a A5 with a poly choke on it, which I haven't seen on a gun for quite a while. And, uh, you know, they were they were enjoying the guy. The other guy said he shot 20 ducks before, so we thought that was pretty good. And I don't know if they were there even an hour. They got their limit. They were shooting away. And one guy ran out of shells, so I gave him my gun and some shells, and they kept shooting, and they got their limit. And Chris and I laughed. And away they went, and then we mopped up our last couple of birds, and uh, we, we just had the best laugh all about it. And... uh you know, I'd say it was a good send-off for Chip. I mean, enjoyable last hunt with us that he got to have and uh, all-around great experience. And at the end of the year, I said we had one other experience this year, which probably tops it. But uh, that experience there was one of the highlights of, of our year for sure. Um, wow. The other one being, can I can I add on about the other one was? You bet. Um, I'm, I'm president of Pitt Meadows Gun Club. And uh, we've lost Chris, I think. Uh, <clears throat> I'm president of Pitt Meadows Gun Club. We were contacted by Reliable Gun in Vancouver, and they said the uh, what uh, between him and uh, one of our members who was executive, they decided we're going to run uh, first my first uh, time day at the range program. They wanted to get know if we'd be on board, and club donated uh, clays and the and the facility. The other um, federal, I think, donated ammo, and I think the other one was um, uh, Silver Core, I think, was a company here. They paid paid part of the something else. So I think it was maybe they paid for the ammo, but it was federal ammo. They got price on. And these young people all came. We had we've had three of them now, and part of the program is uh, I have like our farmer's grandson was quite interested in shooting. His name's Clayton. We brought him out, and he hit some targets. And I said, okay, well, he's joined us last year, and he's sort of like our little sidekick. 
And we say he's our good luck charm. For a 10-year-old, he shows up with a duck call. We said, blow it. And he blew it, and he was really good. So we said, you can call ducks now. And he called ducks. We're shooting ducks, and he's calling. So he hit a few clays. I said, you're good enough that you you can shoot next year. You know, so when we came into the fall, Chris and I uh, got a pump. We've taken youth out before, and we found uh, we're going to give this guy one shot. You know, so we always give youth one shot because – they start flailing away, and it's a lot easier to watch them than the first shot. And uh, like one, third shot one shell us. in a time, and they got not one, three, just just one, one. shell, okay. just one, no, shot. just one. Yeah. And on his first bird, he rocked it, got one, and we we're all. You should have seen his face. We got video of it. And that he is just beaming. We were all excited. We shot three ducks all day, and we went home. It was one of the best days ever. And we've since been out a couple times. Chris took him out and says, "Oh, he, he got five today." We we're all pretty excited. Doug, Doug and Doug was down, uh, our buddy Doug that we both know here. And, uh, we said, we jokingly say he's the only guy in Alberta that travels to BC to hunt ducks, but, um, <laughs> away he goes. So Doug comes in and, um, young plays out there. I, I, I arranged to him to come out in the second day and I gave, I gave him my, uh, I have a, uh, Browning 12 at and we put one shell in it and, Birds were coming in, and he started out. The kids started out great, hammering him. And Doug was just beside himself; could not believe this young fella. I think he shot thirteen shots, and he got eight green heads, and as limit. And he's sitting there. The kids going, folded them. Wow. <laughs> we're all laughing her as a. So we had a great day. We, we <laughs> end up limiting out all three of us, but the young fellow was just on. And the nice thing is, they fire the shot. He drops his bird. We can shoot a bird off the side if we like. And uh, but the whole thing is great experience and. Uh, just knocked it out of the park for, for Chris and I to see this young fellow develop. And, and we've always been active in that anyway, um, with the, the old heritage days, except that, uh, the federal government decided to get rid of it. But Chris and I used to take out, uh, four to eight kids a year, uh, on, on the different days, whoever we could get. And, uh, usually it was people we knew as kids or it was, um, kids that shot trap at the gun club. We knew they were good shots. We knew a little bit about them, handled the gun well and we brought them out. And uh, it was a shame to see that program go, but uh, th- this has been very good. And I'm sure some of the other kids that have been coming to these classes, I, I believe we put through probably close to 50 or 60 this summer, uh, young people. And uh, it's been really, really well received. And it's been a very positive thing for our club and actually for the general shooting community in our area. So it's wow. been real. Hmm. I, I've seen some of the pictures, like I, I'm just, they're going through my head here from, from your Instagram feed, like with, with Clayton and the, his, his first doc yep. and his first limit and stuff. And just, yeah, I, I just, uh, I'm, I'm right there with you on that. Like hopefully folks will find you on Instagram and, and scroll back and yep. see, see some of those pictures of young Clayton. Now, Chris, you were telling me a little bit more about him. Like as you were, you kind of went from like what Dan said, he was just coming out with you when he was 10. Tell the little bit of story, like talking to his parents and the hunter training course and, and, uh, and his school marks and that sort of stuff like that. That was just, that was such an amazing, amazing part of this story too. So as Dan was saying, you know, we, we, the day that we gave Clayton his, he didn't know he was going to get to shoot that day. Dan was talking about and uh it was nice because my son who's 20 now he was out with us and, and he's come through the whole thing too he started with one one shell the whole program now he pretty much outshoots the rest of us but he does Clayton uh he's a busy farm kid he, he there's no end to the amount of work that kid will do he if he's in the blind he will do twice the work of everybody else and 
It's just the farm kid in him, but he's busy and he, he's not great at schoolwork. He doesn't like to read is what his parents were telling me. Um, so he, but he's, you know, of course he loves to hunt. So I said, well, buy him the core manual and don't get it online Buy the actual book and talking to his mom. He got into that thing. He was reading it cover to cover to cover back and forth went crazy. And they said his actual marks in school, his reading was being noticed as being better by his teachers, uh, all because he's, you know, when he got home, he was going to tear into that book. And, you know, he, it's one of those things he didn't even realize he was getting better, but because he was so focused on what he loved, it just, it made everything better for him. So, wow. wow. What a cool and, and he passed his core, he passed his core, he passed his firearm, uh, pal, he passed his pal also. So mm-hmm. yeah, he's very happy. Yeah. What a great, what a great story. I mean, how, you know, how does, how does something like that change you as a hunter? You know, like you guys are like me, you got gray in the beards, you know, like it's a, it's a different phase of our life. Like how, how does something like Well, it that- makes me, it makes me worried because if he takes over the farm and he gets into hunting, he might get booted out. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're hoping he lugs out our decoys for us, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. 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 You know what? It, it, it's such a, like his family, the, the his grandfather owns the farm and then the brothers and the, the son-in-laws and whatnot, they're all, they're all part of the farm, but to see the joy it's bringing them oh. for the joy he gets out of it. Like they just can't thank us enough. And it's funny because it was like, no, thank you. Thanks for letting him come with us because you know, it's, it's, yeah, you don't want to say you just send a kid out with people with guns, but we have a great rapport with them. They know our safety and, and how much we value everything in the land. And, you know, there's there's certain fields, there's just directions we don't shoot, not because it's dangerous, but because there's there could be a building over there and it's just the sound blast. That's, you know, some of the fields we have access to, we don't actually hunt because that's where the farmhouse is. And yeah, we couldn't reach it, but they don't want to hear that shotgun blast first thing in the morning. So they understand that we have rules and then we follow them uh, and, and you know, we're clean. We always pick up after ourselves. So having him come out was the next step and they love that he is loving it so much. Um, the night that he got that first duck, I'd, I'd sent the video back to his mom already and they, everyone in that farm came out. They run a 24 hour milking operation. Everyone in that farm came out of the barn. The grandparents came out of the house and he was like the king of the of the world that night. They they just came to congratulate him. And that kid was probably 15 feet tall that day. So having that come out and seeing that, you know what, you're affecting everything in a positive way, it it really helps, you know, reignite what you're doing. And like Dan said, that best day of the year so far was when he got his first job. Yes. What a great, and, uh, great story. Well, that's can I add something there too? He he came in the day with his limited greenheads. And I said to his mom, uh, he's got eight there. I said, uh, he clean, he cleans them. We showed him how to clean them last year. And, uh, his mom says, Oh no, he'll clean them. And uh, his sister will help him. And she's nine. And, uh, he said, she said, they love it. They're both out there cleaning their birds and they're doing their thing. And she said, oh, and they cook them up. Everything's great. They, they said they all have a ball with it. So yeah, it's a really good experience for us. You know, it's, oh, it's an all around good feeling for us. Yeah. What a great. Yeah, what a great feel-good story. Just family, yeah. right? Like, and friends and yeah. putting others first and putting conservation first. And, wow, I, this, this is, 
Uh, this is a great conversation because it's really, it's really the vision of what I've been formulating since I've met you guys of pit water followers. Mm -hmm. It's just like, it's, it's the full meal deal. It's, it's, it's everything. And, uh, yeah, I just love what you guys are doing now, just to kind of close things out here. So what is your advice for people that are listening that are interested in waterfowl hunting, they want to get into it, or maybe they're just starting. Think, think of that person just like you guys have seen them, you know, like dozens of times set that person kind of on the right trajectory with some advice here. Dan. Sure. I would say one thing you need to learn to shoot uh, shoot your shotgun. And the good thing about learning to shoot your shotgun is if you're polite and courteous and safe, you're going to meet somebody at the range. And that could be a shortcut to learning how to do it. If you're the right person. I, I take many people out from my club. I took two ladies out the other day. Uh, one was her first hunt again. And uh, it, it happens all the time. People ask. I help them out. I'll give them a little bit of information. Um, so that's one way. And the other is... Um, don't be afraid to talk to somebody or knock on the door. We hear so many people say, oh, yeah, it's so hard to get property or land or to knock on a door or something like that. And we know people that say, I got another field. I got another field. And the reason is they actually do go out and knock on a door. Don't be afraid of it. And if you get a chance to come to a course like ours, and no offense, you know, we're not trying to pump our tires, but you, two things happen at these courses. One is they learn an awful lot but they also get to meet up with a guy serious enough to come take a course. And they get a, They got the opportunity to meet up with somebody else and actually form a friendship and maybe a guy that they hunt with. And having two guys going certainly fast tracks you to going more often, being more serious and, and go. Cause Chris and I are, you know, we're hard, pretty hardcore bird hunters, everything waterfall. And that end of it for us is, is the, the biggest part of it. You know, you, having a guy that backs you up and wants to do it as much and do the same things is huge. Otherwise with one of us, I don't know if that all would happen. We'd, we'd be involved, but not like we are. So as a team, we're, we're much stronger, stronger units. So Chris, you got something? Well, I would say if you're talking about somebody who wants to get into duck hunting and they, they think they want to go do it. Yes. Dan's hundred percent, right. Learn to shoot your shotgun first. Uh, the second thing I would tell people is get yourself a call and don't just practice with it, but go out to where the birds are and listen to them. Listen to the birds and the noise they make. Try and emulate that on your call and, and watch how they react to each other. Um, you know, it's, you can find lots of, uh, uh, videos on, on YouTube or whatever to show you how to set up a spread and that kind of idea, but learning how to call ducks and, and listening to what they sound like is a big is a big difference um if you're going to start out that's where i would after shooting list learn how to call huh yeah that's good that's good advice yeah i mean those those are the two i just think deer hunting those are the two basic things right it's like one learn how to shoot um and two understand the thing that you're trying to find inside and out right and docs 
it's a vocal world. They're like flying elk, you know, in, in the rut. It's, it's all about that chitter chatter and, you know, come over here. The food's good. It's crowded. Get away from me. You know, it's like all those, all (laughs) those things. Right. So great advice. Great advice. So where can folks find you on social media? Uh, so they can find us on Instagram at, at Pit Waterfowlers. Um, we're also, because of the way the shadow banning is starting to go with Meta, a lot of the places are starting to switch back over to X or formerly Twitter. So we're also there uh, at Pit Waterfowler. Uh, no S on that one because it's too long. But if you search hashtag Pit Waterfowlers, uh, all our posts are tagged with that. And that's a, that's a good way to get to get in touch or to see what we're doing. Okay. Anyways. Awesome. Facebook. Uh, we haven't bridged the Facebook part yet because um, I'm a little bit busy with the two, yeah. the two social medias and work. That's, so um, that's kind of in the go. We we do have a website, but we're that's still still being worked yeah, on. So that's uh, yeah. And that pitwaterfallers has two T's and it's all one word. Yeah. You bet. You bet. Yeah. It's the title of the show. <laughs> okay. I can't there you go. Gosh, guys, um, you're, you're such an inspiration in what you're doing. I'm just, yeah, I'm man, I just want to get out there and pray to the Northern flights and, and, and get some action going. Cause it's, it's been pretty dry and pretty tough here in, in the East Kootenai this year. Uh, the droughty summers, all the little um, ponds where the local birds live, um, the, the Ducks Unlimited project areas were pretty much dry this year, just mud holes. And um, yeah, it's been it's been a tough year. And, uh, you know, especially for me, I've got a dog now that's a year and a half and it's his first year of like full tilt, retrieving well, and just not, not getting the action for him. Lots of upland uh, action for for Ruger this year, but the waterfall has been slow. So um, the reports that I've been getting from experts is <clears throat> your Northern flights are going to show up, <clears throat> but they're probably going to just come in slam and then they're gone South. So you're going to have maybe a four or five day mm-hmm. window. So uh, it's going to be a tough year, but, uh, but just listening to you guys just gets, gets my brain thinking of all types of things and especially just the inspiration on the conservation end and, and helping helping your fellow hunters out. Gosh, that is just such a, such an uplifting message. I've been hearing a lot from different people the last couple months. So thanks for everything you're doing. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. And, uh, keep up the good work. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great experience. Thank you very much. You bet. Curtis, take it away. Right on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by J. Martin Taxidermy out of Kelowna, BC. So maybe you go out and you get involved with the pit waterfowlers guys here and you end up going in the blind and you get your first duck. And it's a, it could be any duck, you know. I like, I like, I'm partial to a big green head. Those are, those are my favorite, but it could be anything. And you want to keep that memory preserved. Well, Maybe ship it off to Jesse at J. Martin Taxidermy and he can give you a really nice, cool flying bird because he does some amazing work. I got to check. I think I think he does birds. I haven't 
I, I got to double check before I start plugging the fact that he's going to do all your birds, but I would it imagine does, he probably does now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, if you haven't checked him out, Jay Martin taxidermy, he's on all the socials. You can find him there. Uh, he does fantastic work. It's, it's really, really unbelievable stuff. Uh, it doesn't look like when, uh, I, like I always say, I've got a, a bit of an eye for the taxidermy just with my grandfather being a taxidermy for a taxidermist for his whole career. And, you know, I always pick out like the eyes are out or it's, it's a little bit, little bit easier to, to not pick that stuff out on like an ungulate when the eyes are on the side of the head, but you can still kind of see, but Jesse's stuff is, is top notch. It's really high quality. So as always, thanks to Jesse, J Martin taxidermy for his support of us here at the Hunter Conservationist. Dan, Chris, Dan Otway, Chris Bradford, pit water followers. Um, there's never an off season. You guys are going to be going full tilt. Do you, do you do Christmas day? Are you allowed to do Christmas day? Usually as long as you're back before the kids <laughs> get up and open presents, you can slip out for a quick one. <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't say, I would say we've done Christmas Eve more than once. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Uh, we, we've done it. <laughs> and cool. we do Boxing Day. Shoot clay. I shoot clays on Boxing Day. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, love the work you're doing. Thanks for taking the time. Come on the show with us and uh, really appreciate it. And I'm uh, excited to follow along and see how the rest of this year unfolds for you guys and the great work you're doing. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and we will see you in the next episode.